podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carbon, and I am joined by the magic of the internet by Leah West, Jessica Davis, and Mike Nesbitt for a quick rapid response to uh, the CSIS decision that came out today, Thursday, July 16th. Um, and it's a bit of a weird one, but it's one that we'd heard rumors about for, I'm going to say, over a year that there was some kind of crazy decision that was coming down. And so uh, it's out now, and I thought it would be useful for us to maybe just take uh, a quick first impression. And to be clear to our listeners, this is, these are our first impressions of what's come out of the court today. And I'm sure we'll be doing more of a detailed analysis later, um, because this isn't the only decision. There's actually been a number of decisions that have come out. So we're going to have another trial uh, court podcast thing. That's, that's how we party here in the pandemic future. It's great. Um, so anyways, thanks guys for coming on. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I'm going to be dead honest with you. It's been a crazy day. We also had news out of the CSE and I've been kind of focusing on Russia hacking us. So can you please uh, do us the honor, uh, let's say Leah, for uh, explaining what happened? What is this decision? I'm going to caveat what I say here today by the fact that I was a lawyer with, with, the National Security Litigation Advisory Group during the period of time where this case, uh, that, where the facts at issue in this case arise. Um, so that should be made aware to everyone who is listening. Um, essentially, this decision arrives from a CSIS warrant application. CSIS went to the federal court asking for authority to use an intrusive um, investigative technique to investigate foreign fighters. Um, and when they did that, it, uh, one of the judges, Justice Noel, started asking some questions. Fast forward, um, and ultimately what we see here is that CSIS had engaged in what, uh, if you or I, Stephanie, did it, would be unlawful activity, uh, and in the sense that they uh, provided funding to individuals who were likely, I'm guessing, associated with terrorism. We don't know for sure, and I'm sure Jess will jump in after and talk about that, um, that could have violated criminal code provisions around terrorism financing. And that information, or sorry, that um, action got CSIS information and CSIS used that information in its warrant application before the federal court without telling the court that um, the information was derived from uh, potentially unlawful activity. And that was the big deal. Um, there's, this decision is very long and complex um, but that's the underlying issue, was whether or not um, CSIS could rely on information that it had obtained um, or was derived from unlawful activity to get a warrant application, and if not, what would happen to warrant applications that um, had already been issued that relied on that kind of information, and how they, how they should move forward um, with information um, ultimately obtained from warrant applications that had relied on unlawful um, information. So it is a complex decision. Um, there are a lot of uh, questions about institutional responsibility and duty of candor that I'm sure we'll talk, we'll talk about, but ultimately that's the decision. And the big finding of the court was, yes, the court could um, in certain instances rely on information that had been derived 
um, from unlawful activity, um, but it would require um, the application of kind of a balancing test that we're used to seeing in, in the criminal law context. So in this case in particular, um, they actually just excised the information that was derived from the unlawful activity and the warrants still stood. Um, so there wasn't any actual impact on this specific warrant application. I should say it stems from three separate warrant applications, but it's really convoluted and that's basically all you need to know. So yeah, I mean, convoluted here does seem to be the name of the game. Can you just quickly explain to our listeners what even an on-bank decision is? Okay, so um, an on-bank decision, This um, so the court sought, sat on bank, which means all of the designated judges, or in this case, as many were available, um, sat and heard um, the information that was um, provided and the evidence provided by um, CSIS and then cross-examination. So there were two amici or um, uh, amicus curiae assigned by the court to help uh, move through these applications and these legal questions. So some of the, um, there were actually witnesses from both justice and from CSIS that were a part of these hearings and they were would have been cross-examined um, and the court would have had the opportunity, all of the judges to hear that information because it is relevant not just in the very specific case that they were dealing with, but across kind of the, the court's entire mandate with respect to issuing judgment or uh, warrants for the court. And so that's why um, more than one judge heard this case. So basically when you say on bank, it means full bench. As many yes. judges that may be deciding these things uh, come and hang out to hear this. And when we say amicus, we don't actually mean the Supreme Court mascot. Not the owl, no. It's too bad. That's their loss. Okay. I, would, I would like all amicus to have to dress as amicus. Right. That would bring some levity to the court, but unfortunately, no. Man, I, I, we have great ideas on this podcast, and I think we should do more to share them. Um, so, okay, so that brings us to our, our kind of second topic then, because you talked about illegal activities with regards to uh, the kinds of things that CSIS needs to do to in order to access operations. So this seems like a just topic to me, illegal stuff. Um, so uh, Jess, do you want to come in and maybe discuss what is at issue here in these in this particular decision? Yeah, it's super interesting. So this case relates to Islamist terrorism, as it says at the beginning of the decision. And there's a handy chart in the decision itself that outlines specifically what CSIS has done. Um, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that. So CSIS provided payments over a few years of probably around $25,000 to an individual known to be facilitating or carrying out terrorism. That is definitely terrorist financing under the criminal code. They also provided a target of service investigation with less than $5,000 in payment. Um, they also directed uh, probably a source to provide a payment of $1,000 to another target, again, suspected or known to be facilitating or carrying out terrorist activity. Basically, all of this stuff relates to CSIS providing funds to terrorists. Now, why are they doing that, um, I think is an important question. So basically what ends up happening in a lot of these cases is that if you want access to these networks, you have to provide them some sort of service or create value in terms of inserting your source uh, into their network. One of the main ways that clearly CSIS and a lot of other intelligence agencies do that is by providing normally nominal amounts of funds. Uh, it also helps to prove your bona fides because most terrorist actors will assume that um, you know, law enforcement and security services will not break the law by doing that. And so apparently they assumed wrong in this case. Um, the one thing that I'll say about this though is that 
in one of these cases, they did provide a fairly substantial amount of money. So $25,000 or probably a little less than $25,000. Um, but we also know that terrorist activity doesn't always cost that much money. So I do worry a little bit about their assessment in terms of how much money they're providing to these organizations and whether or not they're sure that they're not facilitating other types of terrorist activity or like actual operational activity. Um, they also provided things like cell phones, um, again, that enhances operational capabilities. Right. And so maybe one of the lawyers can chip in here. So the issue is that, as Jess said, this is clearly illegal activity that, um, you know, CSIS needs to engage in in order to collect intelligence. And uh, the way my understanding is the way they thought they could do this was uh, under something called crown immunity, which we've mentioned on the podcast before. Can anyone explain what crown immunity is? Sure. So basically, uh, well, so we have. Crown I'm sorry. I should probably just have... say. I just want to say to our audience, Mike is actually recording this in her car. That's how quickly we've put this podcast together. So apologies <laughs> for sound. But please, from your car, what is crown immunity? Yeah. Sorry about this. So. So, I mean, there's crown immunity, which would be immunity for uh, crown, right? So, so um, Philip Legassay will, will kill me for this, so I don't want to get into too much detail about what that would be. Um, but we also have separate immunity, which is implicated here, which would be for CSIS and for the police. And so you have a Details don't much matter, but in 1999, I think, uh, R versus Campbell decision, which essentially says police don't benefit from crown immunity. So there's a rush to institute legislation because you can imagine uh, why police need to break the law. So let me give you the most simple example, which then you could apply to terrorism, which is if you have an undercover agent and they are giving drugs to someone in a set up drug buy, that is trafficking, right? You give drugs from my hand to your hand to someone else, that's trafficking. They've just committed an illegal activity in the course of their investigation of police operations. So technically they've broken the criminal law. So we passed section 25.1 of the criminal code in the early 2000s, I wanna say around 2001, and which gives police immunity. For a long time, what they said was, well, CSIS continues to benefit from crown immunity. I, I don't personally think that ever made a whole lot of sense, but by sort of 2013 to 2015, we start saying, and we see in a CERC report, start questioning that and saying, I don't think CSIS does benefit from this crown immunity. And so we need something like 25.1 to apply to CSIS so that when they do similar things, right? So the stuff Jess has described, um, give money to someone else, give a cell phone, uh, take you know drugs back and forth if it's being passed around a room when you're undercover, whatever the case might be, uh, you need immunity so that the so that the um, basically to protect the the officers, right? So they're not committing a crime. Uh, so we know that from at, I think probably we should have known that some from '99, but from 2013 to 2015, and we don't pass the CSIS for Act reforms until the National Security Act. 2019 in June 2019. So this all takes place before that, which means all the stuff that Jess was talking about, uh, the CSIS officers did not have immunity or CSIS didn't have immunity. So that's why immunity or so-called crown immunity, even though this isn't really crown immunity, is implicated here. So Jess, did you want to add to this? Yeah, so I just want to highlight here too that you know, this activity wasn't always ongoing. There were actually two different pauses. 
um, in this operational activity. The one of them took place in 2017 while the director of CSIS at the time was waiting for a legal decision. I'm sure uh, Mike and Leah can tell us a little bit more about that. And the second one happened in 2019. Um, and that went on for about six months. So this operational activity, which is actually quite fundamental to CSIS activities, was paused for six months while waiting for the passage of Bill C-59. So you can imagine that if you're running a source, you're running operational activity into a terrorist network, and all of a sudden you can't give them money, you can't give them cell phones, what does that do to your credibility? What does that do to the operations? Um, I think there was a huge risk here. Now, I also believe that CSIS would have worked through this problem and probably didn't compromise their operational activities too significantly, but it's a lot of work to have to figure out ways around this issue for something that should have really been sorted years before. Well, I'm sure that, you know, uh, human informants, they love it when, you know, oh, don't worry, we just have to pass some legislation. I, I, they, they're very understanding of that. You know, that's, that's how they work. Uh, I'm a professional. Um, anyways, and don't forget too, sorry, don't forget too, that C-59 passed on the last day. So what would have happened if it hadn't passed? This pause would have been ongoing for how long? Oh man, C-59. That's, I, lo I love a throwback. Actually, that's a, that's a good point because that concern has been effectively remedied by C-59. So we now have this legislation that we, so we, we don't have, there, there's no legislative fix here that it comes out of this because it was fixed in C-59. But Leah, did you? Yeah. So what Jessica is talking about and what Mike is talking about it is about this legislative fix that law enforcement got after the decision of Camel and Ceros. That was included in part of the legislation that came forward in Bill C-59, which we called the justification scheme of the CSIS Act. Um, and so that justification scheme says that only where CSIS is engaged in its intelligence collection mandate can it now engage in certain types of activities that would violate the law where it's reasonable and necessary in order to do it for its mandate. Um, you can go back and listen to, I'm sure, many episodes of this podcast that talk about the justification scheme. But CSIS at the time when they brought this forward was very clear about why they needed it, what it was for, and the types of activities that this would be used for. And explicitly um, referenced you know the idea that there might have to be payments made to people involved in terrorist activities and it's not just um, payments if you're a CSIS officer and you want to use a fake ID technically that's breaking the law too so it's it's it kind of ranges the whole gamut of, of operational um, cover um, covert identity protection um, that was really really necessary um, and uh, you know resolved through C-59. Right. So exactly. So, I mean, this could just be uh, providing someone a uh, fake passport, for example, um, uh, or fraudulent documents. It counts for this. It's not just paying. This isn't just paying criminals money, but it, that is what was that issue here. Correct. Right. Okay. I'm getting there. So that's kind of part one of this. So the, the issue that really seems to be kind of grinding the gears of the judges here is uh, duty of candor. And to a certain extent, what they describe as institutional failure. So what is duty of candor when you are, you know, applying for things like warrants and, and, and or talking at least to the federal court? This isn't the first time this has come up. No. So the duty of candor is um, the 
representative of the Attorney General of Canada and also the representative of CSIS to provide full, frank and, and, and um, fair disclosure of everything that's necessary in order for the court to make its decisions. And the reason why that this is really, really important to be candid with the court about all of the information, the good and the bad, is because typically there's nobody on the other side, right? Um, in this case, there was amicus appointed, but very often, almost almost always, it's just CSIS and counsel from justice on behalf of CSIS asking the court for very intrusive powers. And the court is the only check on CSIS's um, authority. And the court doesn't have the that we don't live in a civil law system where the court can go investigate itself. It has to rely on the information that the lawyers and the representatives of CSIS are providing to the court. So that element of candidness and of trust is really, really important because without it, the whole system of judicial oversight can really break down. Um, and this has been now the third time there were decisions um, previous decisions, one in 2016, 2017 with Justice Noel, we often refer to it as the ODAC decision. There was a previous one, 2013, issued by Justice Mosley called the Diffs decision. So in both of those decisions, I'm, I'm not going to get into the facts because they're complex um, decisions in their own right, but the issue was the court finding out about information or an interpretation of CSIS's legal, legal authority um, through you know, outside means and not because CSIS counsel or CSIS told the court directly. Um, and that information on the, those legal assessments had an impact on how the court would interpret um, or decide whether or not to issue CSIS a warrant. So this is time number three where the court has said, CSIS, you're not telling us everything that we need to know in order to know if we are making a balanced decision when we're granting you your ability to use extraordinary powers that are granted through a warrant. Correct. Right. I guess in some ways this kind of raises the issue of, you know, we, you, you talked about the representative of the Attorney General of Canada and of CSIS. They, these are not necessarily lawyers. Uh, maybe they're supported by lawyers, but often they can be the CSIS officers themselves who go to court. But these are officers who are trained in human source protection, right, in operational security. And, they, you know, and then suddenly expecting someone to go to a court and then say everything they know about a human source kind of goes against all of their training. Is that some of the issue here? I really don't think so. The court goes through the very detailed process that is in place within CSIS and within justice to bring forward the affidavit evidence and, and an affiant um, to be prepared to answer all of the court's questions. And these affiants um, are trained and work with counsel um, to do that. And there is a very um, elemental and kind of step-by-step -step approach to building these affidavits and putting them before the court and a lot of checks and balances. And that's part of why the court seems to be so frustrated is that through all of that, somehow the fact that some of the information being relied upon was derived from unlawful activity didn't um, make its way before decision makers um, is what they found so shocking. And, and one of the things that you know, CSIS needs to, and I believe they've committed to kind of resolving uh, moving forward. 
So I guess what's really interesting from this is that um, the court then describes that constant failure of duty of candor really as a kind of institutional failure uh, to bring all this evidence forward. They say that there's, they, they don't find any ill intent but you know, this is an institutional problem that CSIS does actually need to address. And and to be fair to CSIS, they have actually outlined a number of steps that are available on their website that you can read that they are taking to to address this. But Mike, when we were discussing this earlier, you had said that this, you know, in reading this, you were kind of taken back by the number of what you called own goals in in this that basically CSIS was kind of just injuring itself in some of in, in the way that it behaved in some of these ways can you explain what you mean by that yeah i guess that's the canadian technical term right is is own goal so what what, what i mean is they sort of shot themselves in the foot so as i read the facts they uh the justices, or at least Justice Noel, ended up excluding the information that was legally obtained and found that there was enough information to issue the warrant anyways, which is to say they didn't need to do this. And even if that wasn't true, they seemed to imply that it could be the case that they could actually rely on as legally obtained information, and then they could have gotten the warrant anyways uh, with that information uh, had they just told the court about it. So in other words, there wasn't a really good, in the end, sort of looking back on it, there was no operational reason not to tell the court. You would have ended up with the same result uh, with the issuance of the warrant and with the ability to proceed, or, you know, even without the benefit of hindsight, you, you wouldn't have, uh, but it would have, would have resulted in a similar situation to where we had the break anyways. So now what we have is sort of what in hindsight looks like no operational benefit, even, even if you were being sort of utilitarian about this, in terms of not disclosing that information. And then we have a judgment, which really the crux of this, right, is about that breach of the duty of candor for the third time in the last decade or so, right? And so that's why I say it's a, it's a bit of an own goal in that it completely wasn't necessary even from a utilitarian perspective. Uh, it was, it was you know, legally fraught. I mean, it, you know, any lawyer will tell you, you, you get a warrant and the basis of which is the legal activity, you better at least tell the court about it. Um, and then you get a judgment, which basically, you know, the crux of it is to criticize just the fact that you didn't tell them about it. And it looks like you could have gotten it anyway. So for the, that's the reason I sort of say this, this looks like a bit of an own goal through a series of, of missteps, operational missteps. And I will also note uh, that there is something that doesn't necessarily go to the court's judgment and the court's ultimate findings with respect to duty of candor or to the lawfulness of the issuance of a warrant. But there are, there's an interesting finding here that I think is really is kind of the most big picture takeaway uh, uh, that we need to think about. And it's that CSIS received a legal opinion that said what it was doing was not protected by Crown immunity, that its actions were unlawful, and it continued to proceed to do it anyway. Um, and I think that is really, when you're taking the, the big picture look at it, that's the real issue. But those activities are not subject to the court's jurisdiction. Um, and so it doesn't really have an impact on how this case is decided. Um, but it is kind of, I think, the, the thousand feet, foot view that we need to step back and look at is why would an agency 
um, with an opinion and various opinions, even if not finalized, telling them what you're doing is not authorized, continue to do it. Mike, do you have any like kind of big picture implications that you'd like to add as we kind of close out this podcast? Uh, yeah, at a small, at a much lower level than Leah's and, and less serious than uh, what Leah, and important probably than what Leah has described, but you know, one thing I come back to is some of the justification scheme, both for the immunity for CSIS agents, uh, but also for threat reduction measures and other aspects of the act that was passed, relied on this legal obligation, legal duty of candor as sort of part of the um, legal justification for the scheme operating as it does under Bill C-59. And so uh, so one thing we have to think about, uh, both with respect to that theme and uh, when we see future, I suppose, um, legislation is the extent to which we can we can rely on the duty of candor, as it were, as sort of a foundational piece to a uh, an oversight scheme, right? Or, or or whether we need to think harder about CSIS operations in particular and how you provide uh, oversight. And so I'm thinking here, the, the big justification for this, this scheme, except for police operate in a different environment, as, police, as CSIS always says, except for the police scheme is pages long and the CSIS scheme is about a paragraph, um, and, and except for the fact that when they eventually go to court in the police context, uh, things might come out in a way that they might come out through NCIRA or something else um, with CSIS, but it'll be a little bit different. So uh, we really need to question some of those assumptions, I think, going forward. Right, and so why you know, are we not getting ahead of some of these issues when we can? So Mike uh, has to leave the podcast. Jess, I wanna leave it with you for some final thoughts. Yeah. I see a couple of things here. Um, the first one really relates to the provision of legal advice um, to enable operations. So it's super important when you're in an operational environment that you're getting relevant and timely legal advice. Um, and that seems to have fallen by the wayside a little bit here. And so I hope this decision helps to change whatever it is that's preventing that from happening um, with CSIS and with Department of Justice. We also need to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. So that likely means more regular reviews of Canadian national security legislation and proactively addressing issues as they arise. Like we can't do updates every two decades when technology and techniques change, frankly, weekly um, for a lot of these threat actors. And then finally, from an ethical perspective, you know, this case seems to demonstrate that CSIS opted for expediency over just authority until they were explicitly told that they didn't have that authority. That's bad and it was entirely preventable. Right. That's, so these are actually some pretty uh, serious issues, whether it's, you know, whether CSIS acted um, illegally despite being told not to, the fact that um, we still just aren't very good at upping our legislation when we actually need to. And just, you know, you kind of your point about the way that both technology and the threat environment is changing. And it's not just legislative reforms. There's also perhaps uh, internal policies and procedures. And though, I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, there's decisions here that were made that shouldn't have been made. And, and that's important. Leah? Yeah, I just want to jump in and cl clarify one um, small point, And this is something that's raised by the court is that CSIS wasn't told not to do it. They were told something was probably unlawful and that there was a high legal risk. 
and that they and the one of the issues that's raised by the court that I think will be subject to future review and maybe reform is the fact that Department of Justice does not tell agencies what to do or not to do. They tell them what the legal implications of what they're planning to do are. Um, and so it still is up to the individual agency to make that decision. Right. So they were given advice. They were told this is high risk. Um, should, should, should Department of Justice been clearer? That's the recommendation of the court. Um, I I do think that the court um, misconstrues a few things in some of its decision. I'm going to get really nerdy for one quick section here. You're in the right place. Right. Um, The court talks about how this was a breach of the CSIS Act, and that is not what happened here. What we're talking about is potential violations of the criminal code that weren't authorized. So we don't have, um, you know, what they were doing was not yet authorized under the CSIS Act, but there was no clear line within the CSIS Act that that CSIS walked over here. And sometimes that's um, that's not clear in the decision. And I, I think sometimes the the judge, with all due respect, actually misstates that. Clearly, there's a lot of beady issues here, but I wanted to put out a podcast that kind of chewed through the, like, our first impressions of this. And perhaps this is something we can revisit in the dog days of summer when we had some time to think uh, these over, whether it's through a, a blog post, an editorial, or uh, perhaps even another podcast. So um, I want to thank everyone for joining uh, today on very short notice. I know it's been a crazy day for pretty much everyone, and everyone's very busy, even if it is uh, July in the middle of a pandemic. So thank you guys so much and I look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. Thanks Steph. Thanks Steph. And I'll say just goodbye for Mike because I think he's got to drive his kids somewhere so um, yeah we'll do that. See you next time.